Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. In my history as a medical device professional, one of the more challenging and at times frustrating topics to deal with is biocompatibility. You know, you might be working on a device that has a material that you know for certain has been used in other products that are already on the market, and there's probably already a whole body of testing that that has been done somewhere uh, that you don't have access to and you can't leverage. and and you're wondering, why do I have to go through this same testing that somebody else has already done on this material that has already been used? I mean, it's, it's tricky. It's challenging. And, and there's lots of nuances on this topic of biocompatibility. On this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast, we have an expert, a guy who used to work for FDA and now works for a company called Biologics Consulting. This expert is Josh Christ. He knows biocompatibility inside and out, and we barely skimmed the surface today on the topic of biocompatibility, but it is one that you should check out and learn more about. Hello, and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host, founder, and VP of Quality and Regulatory at Greenlight Guru, John Spear. Folks, there's a a topic that uh, I don't want to say plagues a lot of medical device companies, but it does challenge a lot of medical device companies, especially those types of devices that have some sort of patient contact in some way, shape, or form. Yep, you guessed it. We're going to talk about biocompatibility today. And with me is, frankly, an expert in the topic of biocompatibility. I have Josh Christ with Biologics Consulting. So Josh, welcome. Thanks. Uh, it's nice to be here, and it's an interesting topic. Well, Josh, you know a lot about biocompatibility. I mean, I, I remember back in the day, I used to work on a lot of catheter devices. I, you know, I, 10993, the ISO standard, you know, was my friend. The, uh, I recall fondly this this uh, chart that I would go through, and I would determine the duration and uh, type of body contact, and I, you know, kind of go through that that table and figure out what types of tests I needed to do and so on and so forth. So is that, I mean, I guess enlighten us a little bit. Is, is this still the best practice of, of from a biocompatibility standpoint or are there some other tips and pointers that you might share with folks? Yeah, well, so the chart is definitely your friend. And apart from, you know, it can be a little confusing sometimes figuring exactly where your device is in terms of which tissue and which duration. But, you know, if you to the chart and and do all the testing in in the row that you've identified you know if you've identified the right row um, you should be in good shape the, you know the problem for a lot of companies is you know and more so with the 2016 guidance document is that there's a lot of columns in that row and it can be a lot of testing especially if you think you know your device isn't particularly risky. You know, so a lot of companies that I talk to, they're, you know, looking for ways to, to do a reduced panel or, or justify not, not doing certain tests. You know, and just a side note uh, for that table, you know, in terms of duration, uh, a common misconception is, is how FDA determines the, the contact duration. And they really do consider cumulative contact. You know, so I see this a lot with like wound dressings that are supposed to be used multiple times. You know, it's not just the 12 hours for one use or something. It's if you're using this daily, 
um, they really do total up all that contact. Um, that's another thing to keep in mind for that table. Really interesting, you know, and, and I think that's really a valuable point to consider, you know, the, um, this is folks, if you have been done any sort of biocompatibility uh, for a device that you're working on, you, you know that it can be expensive, you know that it can be time consuming, you know there's a lot of nuances to that. So I would say oftentimes, you know, uh, I remember um, when I worked on projects, I was trying to figure out, okay, is this test absolutely necessary? Are there other avenues that I can go? Can I leverage things that I've done before? And those are all things I want to dive into a little bit today. Uh, I know these are this is a very, very deep topic, folks. We're going to just skim the surface today. But let's talk a little bit about some of those things that you might be able to do to kind of reduce your testing uh, requirements. One of the things that comes to mind is chemical characterization. Can you talk a little bit about the benefits, the pros and cons of, of chemical characterization? Yeah, so... A big part of the, the 2016 guidance is a, a risk-based approach um, in, in deciding what tests you're going to conduct. And so FDA outlines, you know, you can perform chemical characterization techniques and identify what's really in your device. You know, something that's good to do, you know, just from a quality standpoint anyway. But if you do a good job, you can also kind of quantify and identify any potential, you know, toxicities and use that to you know, guide your biocompatibility testing, whether whether it means you have to, you know, do additional value evaluations or whether it, it comes out really clean and, and, you know, supports that maybe you don't have to do some. So take a step back. So the, the risk-based approach, there's a couple things that, it, that it's not that I see a lot. And so one of those is um, history of use. And so... You know, the FDA kind of states it in the guidance um, and companies will come in with this argument, but it really doesn't hold any water when you get to FDA uh, with biocompatibility, except for maybe some specific situations. And so that's simply stating that polypropylene has been used in medical devices for 20 years. Um, it really doesn't answer any questions for FDA because, you know, just the name polypropylene really isn't a good description of a polymer. You know, I mean, it's so generic, right? I mean, there's... Yeah. It's like saying, you know, it's chocolate cake. Like, you don't know what else is in there that you're eating. You know, it could be could be a lot of things. You know, so and some of these polymers have um, different ways you can synthesize them, you know, different additives and plasticizers and, um, you know, then put it into a manufacturing process where you have potential you know, chemicals just used in the processing to make the device. By the time you get to the final device, FDA really wants to know what might be in there that you don't expect or that is a side product of, of the reaction and not just what the base material is. You know, polymers can have big molecular weight ranges and, uh, you know, it's really just, yeah, a poor description. <laughs> so um, that that's not an argument that you can really come in with Except for maybe for like a skin intact skin contacting device for a brief period, you know, I, I don't think FDA is in general overly, overly concerned with, you know, uh, yeah, like polypropylene or um, ABS or you know, common skin contacting uh, plastics coming in transient contact. You can can maybe get away with with that justification, um, but but not necessarily. Um, yeah, so. So that's you know generally not an argument that flies. Um, and, and, and a step closer is doing a, a 
risk assessment of, you know, from like a toxicology perspective of the the polymer chain, you know, it's it's monomers, any ingredients you include in your process, you know, and evaluate what you know is going to be in there. And that, you know, can be helpful, particularly if you know, for example, if you're using like silver nanoparticles in your device, you know, that's going to be something that you have to be careful with going forward in your evaluations and are probably going to need to do your genotox testing. And, um, yeah. you know, it, it can help guide, but that still doesn't answer FDA's questions of, is there something in there that's not supposed to be in there? You know, on um, impurity problems with the, you know, supplied uh, polymers or resins or side reactions during the manufacturing process or polymerization process, depending on, you know, if, if you're making it. And so that's when, when we get to, you know, real chemical characterization and, and figuring out what is exactly in there. It can be used, it's particularly helpful for the toxicity endpoint, um, so the subchronic carcinogenicity and chronic toxicity, not necessarily as helpful for implantation. Implantation FDA is often looking for surf, you know, the effects of the physical form of the device. So if, if particularly if it has a specific surface geometry or, or you know, features that could influence its compatibility with the body, chemical characterization doesn't really provide any insight into that. Um, so what I'm hearing you say about chemical characterization, and correct me if I'm wrong, but what I'm kind of picking up on this is that this is um, potentially a good screening tool that a company should think about when they're identifying potential materials to use in, in their product. It's, it's uh, an early type of, of test that can be done to you know, see if there's any sort of gotchas or potential issues. Is, am I thinking about this the right way? Yeah, you know, I think that's one way it can be used. And definitely if you're looking at potential suppliers and, and if they have you know, chemical characterization data available, uh, that can certainly help you select materials for your device that have a good chance of you know, passing subsequent biocompatibility screening or coming up with uh, good chemical characterization on your final device when you perform it. You know, so looking at suppliers that have good, you know, clean data, it's more more likely that when you finish up, you'll have a good clean product. But yeah, uh, also, you know, I'm talking about, you know, chemical characterization on your final device, you know, when you're doing yeah, bio, okay. biocompatibility testing, but maybe before you do your biocompatibility testing, you can do the, the characterization to to guide your, you know, your selected battery of tests. If you, you know, particularly for like a permanent implant, um, when you're faced with chronic toxicity and carcinogenicity on the on the table, potentially long and expensive tests. And if you know that there's nothing really potentially toxic or carcinogenic in your device, you could potentially, you know, get out of having, to, or you know, it probably wouldn't be justified to, uh, you know, do those those tests. An FDA would be inclined to agree, I think. Right. Okay. So, folks, we're talking with uh, Josh. Uh, Chris, Josh is with Biologics Consulting. And, folks, I'm, I'm telling you, we're getting down and nerdy, down into the details of biocompatibility. And it's important to have an expert like Josh on your team, frankly, especially when you're venturing into this, because biocompatibility is one of those topics that 
it impacts uh, a large, large majority of medical devices. I mean, it, any simple patient contact implant, something that's going into the vascular system, into the airway, if it's going to contact a patient or user in some way, shape, or form, these are all things that you need to factor in and make sure that you're addressing biocompatibility. In fact, you know, a lot of regulatory submissions, they have a section that is dedicated just to this particular topic all by itself. So make sure that you have your act together. And you know, one more plug for Josh uh, at the moment. Josh has experience both from a, from a consulting, from an industry perspective, but he also uh, used to be a, uh, with FDA and focused on this topic with FDA. Uh, Josh, talk a little bit about some of the, the challenges that you, you've seen on both sides of the fence, both from an FDA as well as you know, working in industry. Yeah, so yeah, I was definitely um, you know an FDA reviewer in the plastic and reconstructive surgery branch for about seven years, and we dealt with a lot of you know implantable devices that you know needed on the extent uh, thorough end of the uh, biocompatibility testing uh, battery, um, and so uh, you know it's challenging from an FDA perspective. Uh, you know, looking at, you know, new devices or novel materials and at the same time having industry providing wide variety of justifications for tests that they don't want to do or don't think they have to do and, you know, trying to evaluate that from a, a regulatory perspective. And so on the FDA side, I would see a lot of these chemical characterization approaches and some of them just uh, don't, aren't as helpful as as others. And so, you know, one example is what we should probably talk a little bit about what I mean or what FDA wants to see when, when we say yeah. chemical characterization. Yeah. And, um, and, and so, if it's you know, okay, there's Josh, a lot of ways to characterize. I was just going to say, I yep. can lead us, lead us uh, into that conversation. I want to use uh, a, a personal story from a few years ago that I think will dive into that topic and, and maybe a couple others on this uh, a bigger topic mm -hmm. of biocompatibility. So a few years ago, I was working on a, a device. Uh, it was actually a wound dressing. It was a polyurethane foam material. Uh, all the specific details escape me at the moment, but... We, uh, you know, for those in the, the wound foam business, there's like three manufacturers literally in the world who make uh, this raw material. And, you know, this was, there was nothing frankly new about this material. It was, we were purchasing it from a, a distributor uh, who purchased it from a supplier and that supplier supplied, you know, many, many other wound dressing companies. And so there was definitely uh, a proven track record of biocompatibility for this particular material. And we did some chemical characterization. We did some uh, cytotoxicity and a few other tests to be able to show that this material that we're buying is exactly the same as other wound foams that were out there. We even had uh, access granted to us by the supplier for uh, FDA to leverage the master file uh, for that particular material. So but let's just say that that the experience at the end of the day, you know, we were not able to really leverage chemical characterization or that master file. Instead, we were led down the path of actually having to conduct the full battery of biocompatibility tests for that particular material, duration, and so on and so forth. So that uh, was an experience that I had. So maybe this, this can help us dive into what's a master file and how, how chemical ca characterization could be good or how it can be bad and some of the challenges with that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you know, for those of you uh, who don't know, a master file is uh, basically a a file that a 
you know, supplier can submit to FDA that contains a lot of information about their material, uh, physical properties, uh, biocompatibility testing that they've done, uh, chemical properties, et cetera. Um, and then they can provide permission for FDA to look at that master file when reviewing your device. But you don't necessarily get to look at the master file unless they, they send it to you. And, and a lot of them won't. It's you know, it's kind of a third party, yeah, FDA can look at this, but this is our proprietary information. And so that can make it real challenging going in, trying to justify using it if you don't know exactly what's in there. And so, you know, FDA's biocompatibility kind of talk, document talks about um, master files and that they could be useful, um, but there's, there's some challenges uh, with using them. One is, you know, the FDA's desire to have testing on the final finished device. Um, and so the, at, at baseline, the, the master file information isn't going to be on your device, your final finished device. And so then it becomes a point of comparability and figuring out if there's anything that you can provide to FDA that would justify the similarity of your device, the test articles that were tested in the master file in terms of processing and sterilization. So. The narrow path in which it might be useful is, you know, if you have a simple device, it's pretty simple molded from, you know, one plastic or, or it's just a, a wound foam, but also that you know that the way you process it and sterilize it is exactly the same as the way it was done in the master file. And then you can provide, you know, FDA has a, a statement that you can quote um, the biocompatibility equivalents. You know, this is the same as the test article and its form. It's uh, chemicals added, uh, you know, there's, uh, you know, a list of, of all the ways that it can be the same. Um, and if you can state that, you're in good shape. The problem is um, you don't always know that that information or the, the master file didn't have it available, or it wasn't sterilized, or, or it wasn't treated in the same way yours was. So it can provide some information, but on its own, it's not necessarily... Uh, going to get you there, but what what could be done is um, is if you conduct your your own chemical characterization uh, and can demonstrate that there's nothing new coming out of your device and that you know you don't add any uh, you know processing agents or, or you know additional cleaning chemicals, you could you know increase uh, the case to FDA that you're you're similar to what's in the master file, particularly if they have chemical characterization data as well. You could, you know, line them up and show that show that you are the same as this material that's already had testing done on it. Um, okay. And I, Josh, I assume that, that... That was a lot, but... No, it's a lot, but it, it's it's good stuff. And like I said, folks, we're, we're getting very detailed here. And I want to try to pull us up a little bit uh, higher level. I want to focus... Um, the the maybe the rest of the conversation today on you know things that that those in industry you know steps that they should take things they should consider. I want to remind folks uh, that of course you're listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast. Did you know that Greenlight Guru recently launched a brand new podcast? Yep, that's right. You have to go search for MedTech True Quality Stories. You'll find it on the Greenlight Guru website. Simply go to www.greenlight.guru. You can, uh, and, and you can find that MedTech True Quality Stories podcast. You can search for it and 
SoundCloud and iTunes and anywhere else that you're consuming and listening to podcasts. But it's exciting. We're sharing stories from med device executives, you know, from the trenches, you know, things that they're challenged with, faced with, and and how they uh, attain true quality with their products and processes. So really awesome podcast. I'm excited about it. It's some of the the most fun that I get to have is to to you know, talk to folks like Josh and, and med uh, tech professionals about, you know, what they're trying to do to improve the quality of life. So be sure to go check out med tech, true quality stories. Again, I want to remind you of talking with Josh. Chris, Josh is with Biologics Consulting. He is a biocompatibility expert. So Josh, let's bring it, like I said, bring it up a level. Let's give folks some, some tips and pointers, some things that they can do today to take action, to put themselves in a good position from a biocompatibility uh, standpoint. You know, one of the things that, that seems obvious to me is, you know, I need to reach out to somebody like you. Uh, aside from that, what are some tips and pointers that you could advise those listening to from a biocompatibility standpoint? Yeah, so, so one is the FDA biocompatibility guidance is really a great place to start if you are not familiar with the topic and you're, you know, uh, looking to um, figure out what testing you need to do. Um, you know, so definitely start there. Um, as well as you know, your, your device type might have a, a device-specific guidance document that that mentions some um, specific tests. You know, there's uh, different devices like um, you know respirators that have uh, more specific biocompatibility requests from the agency or or this particular branch or division, just like to see. Um, things a certain way. Um, so definitely check out the guidance documents. Um, and and let know, me just remind folks, sorry, Josh, let me just remind folks, uh, it's obvious to you and me, but but uh, what is the, the standard that people should be going to from a biocompatibility standpoint? Yeah, it's the uh, ISO 10993 uh, standard. You can also look up on FDA's website the, the most recent recognized version and any issues they have with their standards. You know, FDA recognizes a lot of standards, but certain parts um, either conflict with their guidance um, or they, they disagree with. And so they'll have a note on the extent of recognition on, on their website. You can just Google, you know, FDA recognized standards and it should come up with yeah. one of the first search results. I generally use Google to navigate FDA. It's, <laughs> it's easier, right? Navigating it. it is. Yeah. Just do site colon FDA.gov. It'll yeah. be better, better yeah. information. And, um, and on the, um, on that ISO 10993, it's a, a, a series of standards. Uh, remind me how many parts there are to that overall 10993 series. Uh, so the chemical characterization is part 18, so at least uh, 18. Um, yeah, I was thinking it was around 20. So yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Another thing you can do is interact with FDA early through pre-submission. If you have a complicated device, you know some topics get really complicated, like um, in situ polymerizing devices. Um, you know, I've experienced with those, um, and it's definitely something that you want to run by FDA <laughs> before you. Uh, get to your point of the final submission. You don't want to have to, you know, redo everything when you're trying to, you know, get over the final hurdles. So the the pre-sub process can be a good idea, especially if you're early on, on in the process. And folks, we've talked. Yeah, another, uh, I was just going to say, remind folks there are uh, previous episodes of the Global Medical Device Podcast where we've talked about the benefits of a pre-submission. Uh, you know, a pre-submission to FDA has a, a lot of value. 
uh, you know, based on, you know, your, your, if you have a novel technology, you know, indications, you know, certain things that you're planning to do from a development standpoint, but it's very, very important, very helpful on this topic of biocompatibility as well. Go ahead, Josh. And I also wanted to touch a little more on, on what I mean when I, or what FDA will find is useful for chemical characterization. Um, we've talked a lot about kind of why and why not. Um, there's some tests that are more useful than others. And so, you know, when we're talking about standards, ISO 10993-18 lists uh, different tests you can use and, and what they might be useful for. And so um, what, what FDA really likes to see is, uh, you know, several tests that can give you both quantitative and qualitative information. And most useful, I think, is... GCMS um, to look at volatiles and semi-volatiles, LCMS, you know, to look at non-volatiles, and ICPMS, which can do trace um, metal impurities if you have, you know, metallic catalysts or um, just the quality in general. Um, uh, those were, you know, abbreviations for gas chromatography, liquid chromatography. But yeah, those are what you're going to want to take a look at when you're you're considering chemical characterization. Some companies come in with like an FTA, FTIR spectra and just uh, map it on that of a supplier and say, oh, look, all the peaks are the same. So, you know, we're the same as this, this cleared material. That's, that's generally not the detail that is going to get you through the chemical characterization process. Um, yeah. Um, and so, you know, there's definitely a, some some additional points to those uh, methods that can get you tripped up. Um, so I think it's a good idea to run those protocols by you know, their consultant like me or by the FDA before you do the, the testing if you have time. Yeah. And, you know, um, it just seems like um, this, this topic can be um, a Pandora's box at times. And, <laughs> and uh, um, it is important. And I'll, I'll share one other uh, story from my past. I was, you know, early in my career. And, you know, the 10993 standard, I, I don't remember its origin, but let's just say it's been around for a long, long time. And it makes sense, right? Because medical devices oftentimes interact with people and humans. And you want to make sure that those materials that you're using and are safe. Uh, but anyway, I was working on a device that was going to be a 510K submission. And uh, we were about a week away from doing the, the 510K or submitting the 510K. And I was going through and I had created uh, a traceability matrix. And folks, this was about 20 years ago. So this is long before uh, Greenlight Guru existed to help you with traceability. But uh, I was going through my traceability matrix and I had realized that there was a gap. There was something that I had forgotten to do, something that had fallen through the cracks. And it was biocompatibility. And... Um, you know, the first response or reaction was, oh, we could just submit that uh, with to the 510K and, and assume that, you know, we might get a question about it, but we can, you know, run the test in parallel. But, and, and I think once upon a time, uh, that, that used to be kind of the case where companies could do a submission and they might, you know, uh, provide a, an I promise statement on some different biocompatibility tests. But uh, it's it's my belief today that that that's not really the case. I mean, you're put, setting yourselves up for failure if you submit your 510k or other type of regulatory submission and that biocompatibility topic has not been 
thoroughly and comprehensively uh, addressed. Can you speak to to that a little bit, Josh? Maybe as both uh, the recipient from the FDA perspective, as well as you know, in in your industry experience, what would you advise companies to to do there? Can they do I promise things, or, or are those days gone? Those those days um, are gone. I don't think you'd even get past RTA if you came in with you know with nothing nowadays. So, and certainly a statement that you're currently conducting them would not help <laughs> would not help with that. Uh, you know, if you're you know really trying to move things along, you might get away with doing you know a subset like the you know cytotoxin sensitization irritation. Um, well, you start on one of the more mid-length tests like intramuscular implantation if you, if you need it and, and have that ready knowing that a, a question in the AI letter is coming. You know, you could consider an approach like that, but uh, you're not going to get to the end of the road without having an explanation for every single box in that, in that table that's appropriate for your contact classification. Uh, FDA is definitely going to ask about it. And so, yeah, it's a, a good idea to think about that ahead of time. Um, you know, again, if you're not familiar, seek expertise from someone like me, because um, there's a lot of you know places to trip up, even uh, for the simple test when you get into the details. You know, cytotoxicity, for example, one of the you know more ubiquitous tests. You'll you'll probably do that if you're your device contacts a patient. Um, you know, for some devices or some branches, they might want to see um, a direct contact cytotoxicity instead of an agar overlay, or they'll want to see an emulsion um, you know, instead of you know, one of the other options. You know, there's some depth to each of these uh, sections of the standard um, with different, different options. And uh, if you don't do the right one, um, you'll, you'll have to redo it. FDA uh, will they, they will NSE you over a cytotoxicity test. Um, it's, it, it can happen. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And uh, Josh, just remind folks, you listed a couple acronyms. AI, remind folks, what's AI? So AI, uh, additional information, it's okay. um, the, the whole process in the 510K. So FDA had, you know, will review your submission for about 60 days and then send it back to you with a big list of questions. Um, and you'll have one shot to answer them in that in that five ten k. Yeah, um, it's not a situation that yeah. I mean you try to. Uh, this is a, you try to anticipate uh, what is expected from or what is going to be required from an FDA reviewer standpoint because you don't want the AI letter. Frankly, I mean it happens. It's okay if it happens, but to Josh's point, you have one shot. So, and there are some no brainer activities, you know, that like things like sterilization, things like uh, electromechanical testing, if your device has electronics, things like biocompatibility, these are going to be uh, sections of your submission that are going to be reviewed with a fine level of detail. So, uh, and you know, you have access to the standard or need to have access to the standard in, in this case, ISO 10993. So there's really, no excuse for for having some deficiency on this particular topic. So this is a no-brainer one. This is not a reason to get AI. So be prepared. You know, you have tools, you have folks like Josh, 
you have the pre-submission, you have the standard, there are guidances, and so on and so forth that can uh, you can use and leverage to prepare a thorough and complete submission. Josh, you mentioned another acronym, NSE. This is the not the one that anyone ever wants, but remind folks, what is NSE? NSE is a, a not substantially equivalent decision, and it's, a, it, it's basically a rejection of your 510K. Honestly, though, it, it, it's not the end of the world for you know performance data reasons. It's essentially another hold that you have to pay for <laughs> to, to submit again. So it used to be that the FDA would put the device on hold multiple times if they had dis- additional questions. You know, but then that changed with you know one of the more recent Medufa negotiations. It's down to to one hold now, so you get one shot to answer questions, and then the NSE, and then you kind of have to regroup um, and resubmit, which is a little different from getting rejected. Well, that's true. When you intended to use, the, right. uh, you know, and getting kicked out of the the five k flowchart. So, but yeah, so uh, but what it costs you mostly is time, and that uh, can really hurt you know. Your company, if you're a startup, you know, with a burn rate and, and trying to get things done, if you have to, you know, go through another, you know, three months FDA submission process or more. Yeah. Um, and things, I find things just start to kind of get clogged down when, when FDA is asking a bunch of questions and the, the cleaner submission you can have, the smoother things go and, and you'll get things done a lot quicker. Um, if you try and, and hedge and get a bunch of questions, it really slows things down. And, you know, a 5K turns into two 5Ks that take 12 months to complete because you're not, you know, just um, doing a, a pyrogenicity test or something that yeah. you could have just done. Um, it's costing you more and um, costing you lots of time. Sure. So, Josh, um, as we wrap up uh, conversation today, and, and like I said, folks, we're just barely skimming the surface of biocompatibility. Uh, it's it's a deep topic. It's it's not one that you should be afraid of. Uh, but uh, at the same time, it's don't assume you're going to become an expert just because you read some of these standards. Josh, is, Josh, how long have you been dealing with biocompatibility? A long time now, right? Yeah, probably about a decade now. Um, yeah. Specifically, yeah. And biologics consulting, I mean, you have a whole team of folks that this is what you do all day, every day. So these are these yeah. are certainly experts. Yeah, so biologics consulting, we've uh, been around as a firm for about three decades, and we have consultants across drugs, devices, and biologics. Um, so we can handle pretty much everything, um, you know, including the combination products. A lot of us have uh, previous experience working at the FDA. And we work with very early companies as well as large companies. And um, yeah, so we can help um, wherever you're at in the process. If you're just starting out and need some some strategy and help developing testing protocols, um, or if you're ready to submit um, and, and you need someone to handle, you know, drafting the submission and interacting with FDA on your behalf, uh, we can help out. You know, and our device team is great. You know, we have about ten people. Um, I, you know, I'm probably um the low end of, of experience, to be honest, a lot of us are, you know, 25, 30 years, um, you know, VP level uh, consultants um, that can, can definitely put you in good hands. Yeah, so uh, definitely, okay. definitely recommend. Yeah, reach out. Uh, and and folks will, you know, it's, it's really easy, just uh, biologics consulting, all one word, dot com. You can go check out uh, the services and how they might be able to help you. So, Josh, last question for today's episode. What is the the most common mistake that you've seen 
companies make uh, when it comes to biocompatibility? The most common mistake is, quite frankly, not doing testing that, that, you know, if you had, you know, talked to anyone who's kind of familiar that you would know that you'd have to do. You know, there's some things you can't get away with. You can't get away with coming in with no testing. Um, you can't get away with, you know, for a permanent implant, not doing, you know, some evaluation. <laughs> so, yeah, just underestimating or, or, or not, not, not doing the biocompatibility testing. It really sets you back. It puts you back at square, square one a lot of times. All right. Well, folks, I, I know there might be a temptation uh, to to try to figure out ways to quote cut corners when it comes to biocompatibility um, for a lot of reasons. I mean, it's expensive. I mean, you, depend some device types, you could easily spend six figures on your total biocompatibility testing. And that's a lot of money. Also, another uh, temptation might be, well, it takes a lot of time. Yeah, some of these studies takes weeks and weeks. Some of them take months to do. But, you know, this is, you got to consider that at the end of the day, uh, your product is going to be used to improve quality of life. And you want to make sure that the materials that you're using, the processes to, to make your device, that they result in, in a product that is deemed safe. And because you know we're trying to improve life, not create issues and challenges for for humans. So, you know, do your due diligence, do your homework, make sure that you're uh, crossing every T and dotting every I, and being very thorough when it comes to biocompatibility, and and make sure you're building your case with risk-based approaches as well as chemical characterization, as well as you know the the testing that that is required for your type of product for your type of duration. So. Uh, be thorough. That's that's my advice to you. It is it is very very important for those patients who will be receiving your product. Josh, I want to thank you so much for being a guest on the Global Medical Device Podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure. All right, folks. Once again, been talking with Josh Christ. He's with Biologics Consulting. Uh, reach out to him. You can find him on LinkedIn. You can find his information on biologicsconsulting.com. Uh, he is a resource that that is ready and and willing to help you uh, navigate these challenging biocompatibility topics. So uh, be sure to reach out to them. Uh, folks, you've been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast. This is your host, the founder and VP of Quality and Regulatory, John Spear. Thank you. <laughs>